Well, with that, uh, when we move to today's message, we have a special guest speaker with us that I'd like to invite to join me up on the platform. Uh, today we have again with us uh, a gentleman who, I think a year ago, uh, Dr. David Williams was with us. Uh, David is the president of our seminary, president of Taylor Seminary, also the professor of theology, uh, sorry, the professor of theology and ethics at the seminary as well. Uh, David has degrees from Dallas Bible College or Baptist College, uh, two from Denver Seminary, and then it would, including a PhD in theological ethics. So ethics wasn't yep. enough, theology wasn't enough, had to do it in <laughs> theological it ethics. Yeah. There we go. Uh, yeah. Also married to Jean for, if the count is right, 39? 39 years. Next Saturday. Next yeah. Saturday. Fantastic. Congratulations yeah. on that. Thank By you. the way, you have a big one up next year. So start <laughs> planning indeed. that now. And you have two <clears throat> sons as well, Matthew and Andrew. Fantastic. So we're glad to have you with us. And Thank you. Before we get to this week's message, could you just give us a brief update on what's been happening at the seminary? You know, COVID yeah. has changed all sorts of lives, and I'm sure the seminary has not escaped the impact of that. So no. um, I'll, I'll just leave you to maybe give us a bit of an update and okay. then uh, into today's message. Yeah. Thank thanks. you so yeah, much. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. yeah, that's good. We'll get another side. Yeah, we'll get to that later. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you. Yes. So let me give you a quick update on Taylor. God is just amazing. Uh, God is doing such amazing things. You know, as, as we have progressed over the last number of years, we have just seen God's hand laying the groundwork for things that we had no idea what was coming, but God seemed to have and just ushered us right into it. So if you've been following Taylor, you know that we've been doing a lot of upgrades and renovations and things. And what we had done is we had actually prepared our campus for COVID, actually. Uh, it's actually amazing. We had... We had not only upgraded all the technology, but we had actually, the faculty had began to be uh, much more proficient at using the technology and everything, um, so that we were able to have people zoom into classes. You could be face-to-face, -face, or you could zoom into the class, and then COVID hits, and all of a sudden, it was as if we just flipped a switch, and all of a sudden, now everyone is zooming into class, and we didn't miss a beat. We simply... Uh, step into this new reality, and we have just been so blessed by that because we had been prepared. We'd also been prepared in uh, our partnership with Sioux Falls Seminary and partnering with them in the Kairos Project because the Kairos Project also is, is providential for us in that it decenters education from people having to come to Taylor and to be here in Edmonton and allows us to bring education to wherever the context of the student is, wherever their ministry context, wherever their living context, wherever God has taken them, we can bring education to them. And with COVID, again, uh, travel became very difficult. Uh, coming to Taylor, get, getting your education in the classroom became very, very difficult. And yet, we were in a position for... to to do the things that God had called us to do wherever our students are. And uh, another, another way, I mean, again, uh, I should have prepared a little bit more for this so I could have kept a little bit shorter. But, uh, you know, uh, financially, the school, we ended this year stronger than we have in many, many years. And, and that was such a blessing to us because so many of our churches, as you probably know, churches are going through a really difficult time. And... As we, as we take that journey with our churches, we recognize it's a partnership and we realize that God will provide for us whatever we need to do what he has called us to do. And so you can imagine 
over the last year and a half or two years or even three years, we have had a significant number of churches that have come along and said, you know, things are just difficult and so we're going to need to scale back on our support. And that has been a little bit of hand-wringing, God, what are you doing in all of this? And yet, year after year after year, God has brought the resources we need to do the things that God has called us to do. And we just feel so blessed by that. And again, we just ended our physical year on uh, June 31st. And this year was the strongest year we've had in many, many years, both in terms of donations as well as in the number of students that we've had in the midst of all of this change. So God is doing great things. We have students on six continents learning in four different languages at virtually every level of theological education. We have bachelor's degrees again, we have master's degrees, and we have doctoral degrees. And again, it's through this partnership with Sioux Falls in this Kairos project. And so if you are sensing that God may be calling you to more theological education, I would love to talk with you because we are creating this system of, of theological education to come to you to help you be prepared to do what God has called you to do in the context in which God has called you to do it. Again, I could, I could talk all day about Taylor, but uh, great, great things happening. Thank you for inviting me to, uh, to give a bit of, a, of an update. And so let's, uh, Mark contacted me a couple of weeks ago or a month ago talking about this series, and I too said, yeah, last year I was here with you. And I started thinking about it and realized it wasn't last year. It was two years ago. It's like we've just missed this whole year. It has been such a long time. Uh, but I am thrilled to be with you, and I, uh, I love the series that, that Mark has designed. And he sent me this list of, of uh, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so, I need to apologize. The, the smoke in the air, I haven't been speaking as much, and I noticed just here, just talking with people more. My throat was much more scratchy and, and stuff. So I brought some water up, and I, I, I hope you'll forgive me having to, to take a breath or take a, take a drink. But when Mark told me about the series and he sent me the list of verses that uh, he, he wanted, you know, to give us the option of selecting, uh, as soon as I saw Matthew 7, 1, I snagged it up. I just said, I said, I want to preach on this. I don't have any idea what I'm going to say. I don't have any idea what God's going to do, but I love Matthew 7. The verse, the, the title of the sermon and the, the particular focused verse that we are talking about, Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. But like all scripture verses, you need to put this into a context. And the context of this verse, it's actually, the context is verses 1 through 5. And so the, the entire, this passage is, do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment that you will be, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to read it out of my Bible. I can't see, I can't see that. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you will give will be the measure that you get. 
Now, that's, a, that's an odd teaching. It, it is one we've heard, we've heard quite a bit, but one of the reasons... One of the reasons I was attracted to this when I saw Matthew 7 is because this hard teaching about not judging is actually embedded in the Sermon on the Mount. And if anyone knows me, you know I love the Sermon on the Mount. I take every opportunity I can to study it, to read it, to pray through it. And so when I saw an opportunity to speak on the Sermon on the Mount, I wanted to grab it, and so uh, I'm, I'm pleased to, to do that here for you this morning. Part of my love for the Sermon on the Mount is tied to the song you sang earlier about the beautiful name of Jesus. Because if you know anything about, uh, 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 about the ancient Hebrew culture, you know that names were not simply identifiers. They're not simply pointers to say, oh, that person rather than that person. And they, they did that. They identified who. But, but names reflected character and who somebody was. And so when we talk about the beautiful name of Jesus, we're talking about Jesus' character as well. His personhood, his way of living, his way of being in the world. The reason I love the Sermon on the Mount is because the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus teaching to his disciples of how we too can live into his own character, his own way of living. See, it's so often, it's so easy for us to think that being a follower of Jesus is simply a matter of adding one true idea to your collection of true ideas. And so I think this is true. I believe this is true. And so I used to not think it was true, but now I do think it is true. But what the Sermon on the Mount reminds us of is that being a follower of Jesus is living the way Jesus calls us to live. That is, he expects us, he invites us, he calls us to live a way of life that he invites his followers into, and being a disciple of Jesus is being a follower of Jesus, and we need to learn to live that way. We're all familiar with Matthew 28, 18, the, the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me, and so go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and them to obey all of the things that I have taught you. Of course, that's at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, and the Sermon on the Mount that we're talking about is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And what I want to suggest is that the Sermon on the Mount is at the center of the way of Jesus that he has called us to live. The Sermon on the Mount is the, is, is the description of the life that he has called us into. Of course, that's often very difficult. I don't know how often you have read the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Mount is a hard teaching. There are all kinds of difficult passages, and a lot of people, they just read it, we just don't know what to do with it. We don't know, 
you know, we, we, we read the contrasts where he says, you know, you have heard it said not to commit murder. But I say to you, and very often we, we, we hear this, we read this, we think that what this is doing is telling us that, that Moses told us not to murder people, but my standard is so much higher, don't even get angry at people. Moses says don't commit adultery, but my standard is so high, I want you never to lust after anyone. And we see it, and of course, you can't not be angry. It's just a part of life. And I want to suggest, and this is one of the things I love about the sermon, is that, that we are misreading it when we see it as something that we can't do, that we can't live, that we can't embody, that can't be a part of the way we live. And I think this is what Jesus has actually wanted us to recognize. At the end of the sermon, he says there are two paths that we can follow. One is the broad path, that's the path that everybody else follows, and one is a narrow path, and that's the path I've called you to. This journey in the sermon is a journey along a path that very few choose it, but those who do have life. The sermon ends with the statement that Jesus makes, everyone who hears these words of mine and obeys them, is like the wise man who builds his house on a rock. And when the rains and the storms and everything comes and crashes against the house, the house stands. We learned that, at least I learned that as a child in a little song. That's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus expects us to live the Sermon on the Mount. But what in the world is he asking us to do? And I'm doing all of this as preface because if we don't understand what's going on in the sermon, we're not going to understand what's happening when Jesus says, don't judge, lest you be judged. We are probably all familiar with the fact that much of the sermon is a series of contrasts. It's a contrast, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, Moses has told you this, but I am telling you that. Now, it's really important as we, as we hear that, that he's not contrasting it in a way that he's wanting to say that what Moses said was not important. He makes it very clear that he has come, verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fill them up to thicken them, to make them more than what you see in them. For I tell you, not uh, until heaven and earth passes away, not one letter, not one stroke of the law will pass away until it is all accomplished. Therefore, it's not about breaking these rules. I'm not, I'm not telling you things to break these, but I'm telling you these things to Fill them up. Indeed, he ends, and your righteousness will exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. It will be fuller than the scribes and the Pharisees. It will, be, it will guide your life towards abundance in ways 
that the Pharisees and the scribes have not even approximated. So he's not breaking the laws of Moses. He's exceeding them. But he's not exceeding them in the sense that, you know, uh, uh, Moses taught us how we earned a good relationship with God. He's, it's not a way that, the, it wasn't that the Jewish people thought that we, that we earned righteousness. This wasn't the way they got into God's good graces. They recognized themselves as covenant people. These were the things that Moses told them to do to display that they had a right relationship with God. How we live in relation to each other and with God is displayed for the world. That's what he is calling our attention to. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees are what we might call traditional righteousness. And it's not that there was something wrong with them. It was not that there is something that we need to set them aside. It's simply that there was something missing. And what Jesus wants to help us see in this sermon is what was missing in traditional righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is what we're going to call kingdom righteousness. And the entire sermon is structured around Jesus displaying how to exceed the righteousness of the tradition, of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what is really happening in the sermon is not that it's a traditional righteousness and then, you know, Jesus' greater righteousness. It's not that there's two parts, even though there's this contrast going on. When you read the sermon, what you'll actually see is Jesus doing more than saying, not this, but this. Yes, we start out with the traditional righteousness. You have heard it said. And Jesus will say, but I say to you, but what Jesus is going to do is point out, traditional righteousness doesn't actually address the real problem. And the sermon is going to help us see what the real problem is. And once we see what the real problem is, then the solution becomes more evident. See, when you don't see the real problem, you tend to think that the solution is just obey the rule. And this is actually what happens both with the traditional righteousness of ancient Hebrews and the traditional righteousness for us. That as long as we follow the rules, everything's fine. As long as we don't disobey the rule, then we're fine and things are okay between us. And what Jesus wants to say is, ah, there are rules and those are really important rules. But just because you know the rule doesn't mean you know what the problem is. And until you know what the problem is, you won't really know what the solution looks like. Now, we don't have time to go through the whole sermon, but I just want to give you a sense of what this looks like with the very first set, because it really displays for us Jesus' way of showing traditional righteousness, what the real problem is, and what his solution is. 
So you've heard it said of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, so that's the real problem. But I say to you, and then he tells these stories, and it's these stories that often make it difficult for us to understand what's going on. But I say to you, if anyone is angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. If anyone insults your brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if anyone says you fool, you'll be liable to the fires of hell. And again, because we've been so formed by rule following, we hear that and we say, oh, Jesus says, yeah, don't, don't get angry at people. Don't insult people. Don't call people fools. But that's simply our traditional righteousness seeping into the sermon to blind our eyes to what Jesus is really doing. Notice there's three stories he tells or three phrases he makes here. But I say to you, let's go back to the, go back to the first. But I say to you, if you are angry with your brother or sister, if you insult your brother or sister, or if you say you fool to your brother or sister. And I want to say these are not arbitrary. These are not accidental. These are very instructive for us. What we see there is a progression. Anger begins to build in us. We get angry for who knows what reasons, but something happens. And if you let it go, if it begins to grow, well, then it begins to not be able to be withheld, and you come out with insulting someone. And if it continues to come out, it's not simply the insults that you make. Then the text says you call them a fool. You say, you fool. Well, you fool is a way of dehumanizing the other person. It's a way of telling the other person that you're not even a person. You're, a, you're an idiot. You're, you're a fool. You are not even a person. So what we see as the real problem that Jesus is trying to call our attention to is that sin doesn't stay in one place. It starts out small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Anger turns into insults, turns into dehumanization. Notice this, the consequences. Anger brings judgment. Insults brings public ridicule. Judgment for the council public shame, dehumanization, calling someone a fool, a fool, not recognizing the humanity of another person, that is the total self-destruction. That is the total destruction. Those are the fires of hell. You see what Jesus is doing? You think that if you don't kill someone, then everything's okay. Jesus says, you haven't got a sense of what the real problem is. The real problem is anger in that anger escalates and begins to grow, and if you don't deal with it, it will destroy you. And then he gives his solution. 
And Jesus' solution, and he goes back to these stories. When you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that somebody has something against you, your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. Go first be reconciled to your brother or sister. And once you are reconciled, bring your gift. Go quickly to make peace with those who you have conflict with. Interestingly, in the sermon, he doesn't tell you don't get angry. He doesn't tell you don't insult. He doesn't tell you not to uh, dehumanize. What he does tell us where the imperatives are is go and be reconciled. Go quickly. Don't let things simmer. Because if you let things simmer, they will overwhelm you and they will ultimately destroy you. You get the structure? You get this? Now, what's amazing about the sermon is the sermon just follows this structure all the way through. That Jesus calls attention to traditional righteousness, calls our attention to, sure, traditional righteousness is fine. There's nothing against it, but it's not enough. What you need to do is to be aware of the real problem, and once you're aware of the real problem, then you will see what the solution is. That structure structures the entire sermon in some really unique and in amazing ways. And our passage here, where we get, do not judge lest you be judged, is the beginning of one of these segments. That is, when we read, do not judge lest you be judged, for the measure with which you measure is the measure to which you will be measured. That fits the structure here as traditional righteousness. This is where we start. This is what God has told us to do. Do not judge, lest you be judged. Don't measure out something to someone else in the sense of judging or condemning or uh, unless uh, you just need to recognize that that's what comes back at you. But what is this traditional righteousness even? What is he talking about? You, 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 can't, you can't read the Sermon on the Mount. You, you can't read Jesus and think that he means don't make moral judgments against folks. Don't make moral judgments. Don't discern between right or wrong. That can't be what he's talking about. The word that's translated judge here is as ambiguous in Greek as it is in English. That is, judge can be this very benign thing where you simply make a distinction. Or judge can be this thing where you sit up on high and you condemn someone where you say you are deserving of condemnation or judgment. Most scholars who read this passage 
suggests Jesus is not at all saying don't discern between right or wrong, but don't condemn other people. Don't call down the judgment of God on what you see as as wrong, thinking that you know what should be called down because you know what's right. This is at the heart of what this traditional righteousness is trying to get to. And it happens all over the scriptures. Romans 2 says exactly the same thing. Don't judge because the, uh, uh, when you judge, you condemn yourself. When you meet out condemnation to someone else, you are as guilty as they are. James does the same thing. Sure, you want to look at this thing and say, this person broke this rule, and you want to bring the judgment of God on them for that. James says, don't you realize (laughs) you broke this one, and you are as guilty as them. Don't judge because you are going to be judged. I want to suggest that what, what Jesus is getting at in this notion of judgment isn't about making discernments, it's what we do with those discernments. It isn't that we, there's a problem with us knowing that this is right or this is wrong. What Jesus is doing is what we need to be careful of is what do we do with that knowledge of right or wrong. And here's the problem. And it's embedded in the language of condemnation. It's embedded in the language of judgment. When we judge, we stand on high and we look down at someone who is being judged. Implicit in the grammar of judgment is this separation, this exclusion, this pushing away And of course, this was at the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. They loved judging others. And the ones that they judged, they excluded from their communities in order to keep their communities pure. And even traditional righteousness says, you're not pure. Yes, you didn't break this one, but you did break that one. Don't judge lest you be judged. See, there's a way of living in the world in which you know what is right or wrong, but you live in such a way that you don't bring judgment on other people, at least not with your word. You're not doing the judging. I think this is, this is, this is what John 3.16 and 3.17 tells us. This is about the way of Jesus. For God sent Jesus into the world not to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. I think this is insight into why sinners loved being around Jesus. Because Jesus, who was the great knower of right and wrong, in his interactions with those who were clearly wrong, did not live with them in a way to exclude them, to push them out, to push them away. See, and that's what we do with our judgment. We push people away from us. We set ourselves on high and we push them. This is very likely why John 8 was included in the canon. We recognize John 8 is where the woman is brought, the woman committing adultery is is brought to Jesus. 
And you remember the story, they, the scribes and the Pharisees bring the woman to Jesus and they, they, uh, they, they tell him, judge her, judge her. And Jesus famously says, well, let the person who is without sin throw the first stone. Let the person without sin start the condemnation. And of course, nobody can. They all recognize that they, they are sinners. And so one by one, they slink away and it, then it's just him and her. And he says, neither do I condemn you. See, Jesus lives in the world in such a way that he needs not judge or condemn sinners. Neither do I condemn you. Continue to live your life without sinning. Interestingly, I don't know, I kind of noticed this this time as I was looking through this. She never repents. He refuses to condemn her. He refuses to judge her. He refuses to separate himself from her, and she doesn't repent. What a beautiful way of living in the context of sinners. Accepting them, embracing them, walking with them, borrow words from the beginning of the sermon, and letting your light shine in their life. The passage here is about condemning others. It's about accusing others. It's about judging others. And the universal witness of Scripture is you leave that to God. It doesn't mean you don't morally discern what's right or wrong. It doesn't mean you live according to how you understand what is right. But it does mean you don't stand and wag your finger and separate people from you because they are sinners because, well, like as your mom taught, when you wag your finger at someone else, you got three more fingers wagging back at you. And that's the reality of the lives we live. Rather than be judging, rather than be condemning, Jesus calls us to be forgiving. Most scholars make a connection between this, do not judge lest you be judged, and the prayer that Jesus has just prayed. Father, pray this, forgive us our sins in the way we forgive sinners. Forgive us, you act towards us in our sinfulness as we act towards others in theirs. See, Jesus calls us to be a community that recognizes sin, but who forgives sin. And lives with sinners, not to exclude them, but to embrace them. To walk alongside them so that our light will shine in their context. But Jesus says, traditional righteousness, this is not really the deeper point. 
Yes, this is, this is all true. Don't condemn. Leave condemning to God. But if you're thinking about this passage, there's something more important going on here. The real problem. And what is the real problem? Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your, own, of your eye while you've got a log in yours? See, the, the real issue about this passage is not the judging and the condemning. It is why is it that you see in the other person something to judge when you don't see it in yourself? See, I think what Jesus is trying to help us to recognize is that seeing is a moral task. We don't just look out there and we just see what's there. What we see grows out of who we are. What we see grows out of things we think are important, things we value, things that uh, are important to us. Anyone who's raised children know about selective hearing. Anyone who's married recognizes husband's selective hearing as well, right? Yeah, this is, this is the way we are, and this is what Jesus wants us to recognize. When we are judging, there's something much more important going on, and that is you're noticing what's to be condemned. And Jesus wants you to ask, why do you notice that? Why is it that you notice that? And then in this, this exaggeration of almost political cartoonery, he says, why are you trying to get a speck of dust out of your neighbor's eye when you've got a plank in your own? See, I think what Jesus is wanting us to recognize is what we see in the world is what is important. And he wants us to ask, what is it that you're seeing? What is it that you're seeing? And understand why our helping really doesn't help is because the log that's coming out of our own eyes are jabbing and keeping us from being able to do the work that we want to be able to do. So what's the solution? If this is what Jesus calls us to do, I mean, if this is the real problem, then what is the solution? The solution is quite simple. First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be, see clearly to take the log out of another's. Here's the deeper teaching of Jesus in the sermon about judge not lest you be judged. That is a truth we ought to live by. We should not be judging others. For the same judgment we use against them is used against us, and we're all lawbreakers, and we have no place. That's the place of God. Done. But what is it that you see when you look into your neighbor? I think Jesus' solution is an invitation to self-awareness. It's an inv invitation to what I call diagnostic, redemptive self-awareness. That is, this is what Jesus is inviting us to do. When you 
find things that you want to rail against. When you find things out there that you want to call down the judgment of God on, Jesus invites us to consider with maybe this judgment with which we're wanting to judge is the Spirit calling me to address something in my life. Maybe the things you see so problematic in your neighbor is actually a reflection of something that God wants to work out in you. What we see needing to be fixed is not about them. It's about me. Our judgment is diagnostic. First, Jesus says, take the law out of your own eye. We're called to help people. We're called to take the log or the, the dust out of other eyes. We're called to help them move forward in greater faithfulness, but not until we've dealt with it ourselves. I think this is part of the beauty of, of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous brings us into, brings an alcoholic into a relationship with someone who knows what that journey is about. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. Don't try to fix someone else until you have fixed that very thing in yourself. In this sense, I think Jesus is inviting us to redemptive empathy. For if we know how hard that struggle is, it will help us walk with the other. When we can recognize our own culpability in the very sin that we're calling out, when we can recognize our own complicity in the sin that we are calling out, then we're in a position where we can forgive as we have been forgiven. Because lastly, Jesus invites us to be a community of mutual forgiveness who see all kinds of things, who who recognizes all kinds of ways in which the world should be better, but we recognize that the call of Jesus is to start with me. And only as I can take the log out of my own eye can I help my brother or sister take the speck of dust out of their own. That's not the way we live in the world. That's not an easy journey. But nevertheless, that is the way that Jesus has called us to live. And if we want the world to see what forgiveness looks like, what freedom from sin looks like, what redemption looks like, what peace, love, joy, what a community of faith looks like, then we will need to walk in this way of Jesus. Judge not, lest you be judged. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you can help your brother or sister. 
Let's pray. Gracious God, we just thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would bring to our minds as we reflect on those things that we think we need to call down your judgment. We pray that you would help us to see our complicity in that. We pray that you would help us to have the courage to walk with those who need forgiveness. We pray that you would help us be the people that you've called us to be for a world that so desperately needs us to be them, that we might bear witness to the beauty of your name, to the beauty of the way of Jesus. For the sake of your kingdom, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Spirit, we ask these things.